can a planet be a character? How many generations does the Pystrong family go back? What are the three rules of NPC creation? And how do you go from the first appearance of an idea to a fully fleshed out cast member? I'm Carrie. I'm Josh. And I'm Monica. And this is the World Builders Podcast. I'm Carrie. I'm Josh. And I'm Monica. And this is the World Builders Podcast, because you can't build a planet without a plan. In this podcast, we, your host, explore settings and genre fiction by crafting them here and now for you, our listeners. And last time we had a, uh, a surprise special guest star, our good friend Raul, who uh, brought things to bear for us and how things of such a, uh, a grisly nature fit in on the continent of Altarian. Oh, come on. Now you're just pandering. I always pander. I have all the qualifications. Those aren't bears. Yes, but they're called koala bears. <laughs> it's the essence of the pun. Anyway, puns aside, um, this time we are going to explore some of the characters you might run across if you were to spend time in the world. We are chatting about some of the non-player characters that Josh has created for this campaign setting. So... Where should we start? I mean, I, w- I would like to get through at least some of the NPCs that we would meet if we were to listen to the, the, the previous content that has been released, um, the, the important ones, at least. I don't know how many we would be able to get through, but, you know. Yeah, because obviously, you know, when you're creating a world and you're creating your protagonists, the world still has to have other people in it. There have to be people for your heroes to interact with. Yeah, exactly. It's not a vacuum and, you know, things just don't appear out of nowhere. Uh, I mean, they could, but that'd be a little bit strange and you'd probably want to investigate why that was happening. But that's not a quest for today. So NPCs are kind of one of the more difficult things to do when writing anything, really, but particularly when planning a campaign, because obviously a planet needs to have cultures and people or the remnants thereof for there to really be anything to have a story about. Now, obviously, if you're dealing with, you know, some kind of spacefaring adventure, something like your Star Trek or what have you, it's totally fine to go to a dead planet. Obviously, unless it's a situation where they're trying to get back off of it due to a crash or something like that. If there's nothing there at all, it's not really going to make for much of an entertaining story. Obviously, there's the survivalist aspect I was just referencing, but unless there's, you know, carvings in stone or the remnants of an ancient civilization or, you know, something of some level of sapience living there, you're not going to have much grounds for a story because aside from the planet itself, there's nothing for the characters to bounce off of. Right. Nothing to spark that inquisitive nature that we that we all share. If you if you land on a planet that all that's there is just sand and nothing but sand, as far as the eye can see, not a structure or soul to be found, okay. Yeah, and if you think of your protagonists, you know, obviously if you're writing a book, these are going to be your viewpoint characters or the significant cast that your viewpoint characters interact with. 
if you're creating an RPG setting like we are here with Zanthuru, it's going to be your player characters. If you think of them as cogs in a machine or a piece of engineering like a clock, which is also a machine, but whatever, um, what's there to keep the gears turning? Other gears, springs, levers, you know, clockwork, pistons and pumps and what have you. And so if the springs and levers are events in the world, then let's talk about some of the other gears. Yeah, and how, how those events kind of kind of change what other people might be around, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think really the best way to go about it is well, to start chronologically uh, from at least the uh, OG, the original generation content, the pretty much first NPC that the party ran into was nobody of real importance. He was just a guy with a story. This woodcutter from a lumbering village who was using his tale of woe and why he left his home to ply a few extra beers off of the people around him. I honestly can't even remember because it's been so long ago whether or not he even gave the guy a name. But he had a voice and he had a story. And it was the telling of that story that got the party together in the first place. Because here was this situation that this man was describing that could have been a great deal of strife and suffering for other people. It was at very least the source of strife and suffering for one family. Mm-hmm. And they decided they wanted to go and do something about it. Yeah. His name was Tarvin. Tarvin, that's right. I thought it was something with a T. Because, you know, trees. Yeah. And we had, a, we had that question a few episodes back about avoiding the planet of the hats, of having your entire world just be cardboard cutouts. And like you said with Tarvin he had a very role, small role to play in the party's lives, or at least his direct appearance in their lives. But he still had his own story. Every character who lives in your world, from your main viewpoint character to the guy that you don't even give a name to selling meat pies on the side of the road... Each of them is the protagonist in their own story. And no, I'm not saying that Meat Pie Guy has to have an entire 30-page biography and a family tree going back 10 generations to be interesting. This method of crimping the crust has been handed down by the Pie Strong family for generations. But if you, as a writer, can explore just a fraction of their story... And use that to interact with the world and with your viewpoint characters, it can create something really compelling. It was Tarvin's sincere fear of what happened that got the party to go investigate his stories, which led to an entire whole sequence of events that is still affecting them to this day. Right, that that results in them actually getting a sort of new member of their party, actually. Someone who actually does become really important to them. And it all started with a story in a bar and a shattered axe. I didn't need to tell the entirety of Tarvin's story to start the story. What he had to say and how he presented himself and his evidence, in this case, his shattered wood axe, was enough to get the gears turning. It was that first pebble rolling down the hill that started the avalanche. 
so when we're talking about NPCs, obviously there's there's ones that have certain levels of interaction with the party. Who was the first person that popped into your head to populate this world? Because that's always something I find interesting is where was the starting point? Because a lot of it grows from there. For the world in general, what what got everything started, where this this core idea came from, it's, it's really the story of the planet itself. Because the way things have been unfolding in the campaign and will continue to unfold is the chronicles of one particular set of people dealing with one particular set of circumstances. But the way I had established the world to begin with was so vast that there could be any number of stories occurring at the same time. The planet itself has interesting stories to tell that happened well before anything that's currently going on. There are stories that can be told there that occur well after to where there might not be any record left of what's going on currently. Well, that's one of the things that I find really interesting about Xanthiru. And I think it might just be because of the kind of magic that we see on it, where it it's about life, that it creates a bunch of stories pretty organically by themselves. You can think of pretty much anything and fit it somewhere on the world. Which is really cool to think about the idea that you know, one of these days we might have other people running their own campaigns in this world and knowing that their characters are out there somewhere living their lives and having their adventures while ours are having, you know, our adventures. That's pretty cool. And that's that, that was my end goal. That's what I really wanted to strive for even before I really had the notion of potentially making a campaign setting for Open Legend out of this was I wanted a world that wasn't limited in the scope of the stories that could be told there. Because as I've mentioned previously in this series going from its beginning, was just how much storytelling means to me as a concept and how important it is that I feel it is to civilization and peoples and how it defines them, how it shapes them, how it helps them grow. As I mentioned early on when we were discussing the inception of the world to begin with, I didn't want something that was limited, that was locked in stone, that, you know, there's a lot of stories that could be told on Middle Earth, but we only really know the one set. And because of the scope of it, it's like, is this only the really, really the only story that could be told there? If you look at the works of Robert Jordan, his his Wheel of Time series, Obviously, they mention that this planet has a very cyclical nature, but it only really focuses on one set of stories repeating itself. And while, as they say, nothing is new under the sun, and I'm sure other people have in the past and will in the future have similar ideas to the ones that I've had, I wanted to make this this place where mostly anything could happen where anybody could tell the story that they wanted to tell using this place. And in a way that kind of makes the planet itself a character. I mean, it, and it, it happens in other, in other things too. Like we, like, I guess if I'm using popular uh, fiction as uh, an example, things like, um, or not fiction, but media, popular media, um, Firefly as an example. 
the ship serenity is basically a character on that show but i feel like because so many things can happen in this planet or on this planet in various times in its history at the same time as so many other stories but the thing that connects them is the planet itself um and so that kind of makes it a character or at least that's my feeling on it yeah definitely so kind of kind of a strange answer to the question but i think it's the most accurate one i can give because this is a story that i've had several iterations of and have used in the past and continue to use obviously and there are some aspects of it that have stayed the same and there are some things that I've changed about it over time. So there are some core players, so to speak, that aren't necessarily the players who are, you know, key to the plot that's been going on throughout the podcast and will continue to be going on throughout the podcast, but they wouldn't be there without the setting as it stands. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess the question that I was asking is of the people who are with the party currently of the NPCs that are with them, which of those people was the first to jump up and down in your head and say, hi, I'm here right about me. So there's only one character who literally jumped to the forefront of my mind and said, right about me. And it wasn't the first NPC that I made for the party. It wasn't even an NPC that I planned on making for the party, but go figure this character that leapt from nowhere and demanded that their story be told quickly became a favorite of both myself and many people who listened to or even participated in the original campaign. And that was the Spirit of Ideon. He is definitely my favorite. Now, who is the Spear of Irion? Uh, technically speaking, the Spear of Irion is not anybody. Uh, the Spear of Irion is a very unfortunate existence, depending on who you're asking, and you wouldn't get that answer from the Spear themselves. But they are the unfortunate result of somebody finding something from an age past and messing with it and experiencing unfortunate results. Like we've established previously, sometimes when you mess around with these artifacts, you get unexpected results. Sometimes the unexpected result is good, and sometimes it's not. And it's really hard to say, <clears throat> pardon, depending on who you ask, where the spear falls on the spectrum, because the spear of Irion is, as it came to be formulated, what happens when you take a weapon and give it a body. Because when Irion, the original person, grabbed hold of an artifact weapon, uh, something that the party came to find out was called a star lance, something didn't go quite right, the weapon malfunctioned, and Irion's consciousness was pulled into the spear. And because equivalent exchange is a thing that needs to happen, something was pulled out of the spear and placed into Irion's mind. Unfortunately, because it was not a sentient weapon, it had literally no idea how to be a sentient person. It had to literally figure everything out from scratch. And so now he has to take care of Irion's body while, while Irion is trapped in the spear. Yes. So, but talking about the creative process there, so you mentioned that the Spear of Arion literally jumped into your head, and I remember that night because 
So for those listeners who don't know, Josh and I are engaged. We do live together. I tend to go to bed earlier than he does. So he'll tuck me into bed and then go and do whatever it else is that he does overnight, whether it's writing, gaming, what have you. He tucked me into bed that night and then said goodnight to me as the Spear of Erion and shut the door with no context whatsoever. <laughs> I didn't know that. I love it. And it, it, it was the strangest thing for me, too, because this this voice and this personality and how they presented themselves literally just came out of nowhere from the back of my mind into the forefront and said, the Spear of Erion is here. You will write my story. So you did that. That happened. You tucked me in, said goodnight to me as the Spear of Erion, shut the door, left me very confused. <laughs> as I had imagined you would be. What happened from there? What were the creative steps that happened that got this story? Since this is an episode about NPC creation, as much as I like to just talk about who they are, I also want to get into how they got there and how the world shaped their story. Well, when I went back downstairs and sat down at my computer, the first thing I did was I opened up the character sheet for Open Legend. And I just took the character name and I wrote down the Spear of Erion. And I just started looking through the rules and looking through the options, all the while thinking about this voice, saying things that I felt were appropriate to that voice in my head to try and figure out who is this person? Why do they refer to themselves as the Spear of Erion? You know, literature isn't sparse of characters of that nature. You know, the Spear of Erion sounds like a title. You know, we've had. Things like the Lion of Peril, the Dragon Reborn, you know, it, it, it very much followed the suit of this sounds like the title of someone. This sounds like somebody who might be important. So why doesn't that feel right for them? And I basically had to start just letting this notion of a character, this voice bounce around inside my head. And every time that they did, an idea got shaken loose. And I had to start basically taking all of these little bits of pieces of, well, okay, this sounds like a title, but it's not a title. This is just literally how, do they, how they refer to themselves. Well, why would they refer to themselves in such a strange fashion? That's not how people talk. Okay, wait a second. They call themselves the Spear of Erion. What if they're not a person? Well, okay, literature has had sentient weapons before. This isn't a new concept. But we don't do the standard concepts here. You know, I've built this entire world on the idea of subverting the traditional fantasy tropes. Just throwing in a random sentient weapon would be, you know, slightly phoning it in in that regards, and that doesn't feel right. So how do we make the Spear of Arion different? You know, and furthermore, who in the party would use a, you know, sentient spear? The party as it stood had a lot of forces of personality of their own, and Anyone who's played D&D, for instance, which is the primary example of a setting with sentient weapons, knows that a lot of times with sentient weapons, it comes down to a contest of wills if the alignments aren't close to each other. A weapon with an evil sentience can take over a good character or cause severe harm to them because they're not in alignment with one another. I didn't want that. It's like, okay, so I can't just give this as a sentient weapon to any one person in the party. Why doesn't it just come with somebody already attached to it? Okay, sure. But that's not something the party's going to like a whole lot. I know these people. I know the characters they're playing. The first thing they're going to try to do is get this sentient weapon that it's apparently controlling this schmuck 
you know, separated and fixed up. Okay, well, what if that's not the case? Yeah, what if it didn't, what if it didn't win a contest of wills? What if the weapon is just as confused about everything that's going on as the person who's trapped inside the weapon? You know, what if, what if it's not a malicious, you know, intent? Can you imagine what, uh, what a human brain would have, what would happen to a human brain that just got shoved into a spear? Yeah. Can you imagine how horrible it would have been if they did just try to separate them? Yeah. And like, also imagine that you as a human being woke up one day keep in mind that you have all of your same experiences, all of your same life that you have had up to this point, except you go to bed one night as a human, and then you wake up the next day as a shark in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay, that sounds really cool. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Just don't turn into a pot of petunias. (laughs) Or a whale. Oh no, not again. But yeah, like, you would obviously, number one, be very confused. And number two, would probably not know how to be a shark, unless you are a marine biologist. That is very true. I don't know that I would know how to be a shark. I'm not a marine biologist, obviously, but I don't think I would know how to be a shark. And if you are a marine biologist, then replace a shark with an animal that you don't know. Yeah. (laughs) An insect. It's about as far from a marine animal that I can think of. Anyways, but yeah, so you would obviously be very confused. So now we have this spear waking up as a human. And being completely lost because obviously, as I, as I mentioned, this wasn't a sentient weapon to begin with. It was essentially an entirely new consciousness created on the spot by a magical mishap. You know, the only thing that it technically knew, and this wasn't even a knowing in a technical sense because there was no sapience there, was being a weapon and i don't know how many weapons we've got listening but that's not exactly something that takes a whole lot of sapient thought it's entirely up to the person holding it stab yay i'm sharp stab would you like to defeat evil today (laughs) Uh, put it back in the sheath put it back in the sheath put it back in the sheath (laughs) so i had this this core concept now we had this unfortunate situation where A consciousness was displaced from where it should have been, and a consciousness was created where it shouldn't be. And you had that mechanism already in place because you had already built the world around the concept of, or well, you had built the modern state of the world, I should say, the current state of the world around the concept that there's all these artifacts lying around that can actively make people's lives way better or actively destroy them. Or somewhere in between, which is what it sort of seems like happened to to the spear. Yeah. Or sometimes both. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Depending on who you're looking, who you're talking about. So at that point, I had the character sheet open. I had the name down and I started fleshing out the numbers, the details. Okay. This is, this is something that is accustomed to being a spear. It's accustomed to being a very special kind of spear. It should at least know how to do that, but it doesn't know how to person. So I made this character out of this concept where they have absolutely no idea how to be a person, but they can be one, which makes them incredibly socially awkward. They don't understand any of the conventional humanisms. They did not know until they almost starved to death that body needs food, until they almost passed out from exhaustion. Body needs rest. Body needs water. Body needs a bath occasionally. 
there's this thing in the mouth that does the flapping things. And when I breathe out, sound comes out. And oh yeah, breathing is a thing. Luckily, involuntary muscles are a thing. So it would be really difficult to like, to, to not breathe, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, I feel like the thing that most likely happened there is that Irion's body never stopped breathing. But it took the spear a while to realize that <gasps> is breathing. Yes. When I stop doing this thing, the body does not seem to like it. The chest starts to burn, and it's not very pleasant. Also, pain is a thing. Discomfort is a thing. Hunger is a thing. And it takes more than just a whetstone to, to uh, be good as new um, when you are injured. Mm-hmm. And that is one thing that I really love about, and I know that, so this episode, spoiler alert, in case you haven't already noticed, is going to be a lot more game mechanic-y than our previous episodes. Like, up until this point, it pretty much feels like we could have been talking about the setting for a book or for a game. But the intent here is a game setting, so talking a little bit more about rules because we're actually building people now. This is one of the things I love about Open Legend, is the process that Josh is describing. Okay, you can pretty much go down the list. Okay, they're bad at this, they're bad at this, they're good at this, and kind of build out your abilities from there as the character informs you of their strengths and weaknesses, rather than having to suss out the entirety of their capabilities and hopefully find the class race combo that fits them. You can just do it. That is definitely the beauty of the Open Legend system, and that it allowed for such things to happen because the the, the thing that became very clear even from the inception of this voice coming out of nowhere was the idea of just leaping bounding out of nowhere bouncing around inside my head until i figured out the details of who this character wanted to be obviously this is a spear spears are generally a thrusting weapon a reach weapon something you set against a charge and occasionally depending on which setting you're using for a spear is something you drop on people with from above I took a little bit of inspiration from one of my favorite other fantasy classes out there, the Dragoon from Final Fantasy. The armored character that leaps into the sky and comes down turns later to deal massive amounts of damage because they're dedicating all of their time and energy to building up terminal velocity and then turning that terminal velocity against whatever unfortunate sap is underneath them. Terminal velocity, indeed. This is where the idea came that of what kind of spear the Spear of Irion was. They weren't just any old magical, you know, spear plus one of stabbing. You know, this wasn't the Spear of Dragon's Bane or Construct's Bane or Goblin Bane because we didn't have anything like that. I made the setting specifically to not have things like that. Well, what makes this spear special? It's a Star Lance. Why is it a Star Lance? Sure, it's not technically a lance, but it sounds better than Star Spear because, man, that thing lets you jump. When you can soar among the stars and bring their fury down upon your opponents. So we have this magical weapon that both increases the ability of the user to leap far higher than any regular human could ever hope to leap. And then come down without shattering every bone and organ in their body. See, that's, that is the, the feat right there. Yeah, that's a little bit powerful, sure. But in this particular instance, it comes with a hell of a downside. Now, granted, this wasn't the original design of the weapon, but we had to have some way to bring it in a little. But that is all that it does. 
cosmetically and mechanically speaking, is it just makes this individual really good at leaping. Well, okay, how do you leap an open legend? Well, you either use your strength or your dexterity, or in this case, your might or agility, whatever it is. It's been a while since I've looked at the rules. I'm sorry. It's might and agility. I mean, I'm sure you're not the first open legend player to refer to them as strength and dexterity, to be fair, just because so many of us learned in other systems that call them that. And that was that, that was the other point where we really needed to start drawing differences because we already had people in the party as it stood who did dexterity-based things. And we don't want to infringe on their territory because then you start getting into conflicts of, well, I wanted to do this thing, but I'm good at this thing. And that doesn't make for compelling storytelling when the people are fighting each other. Exactly. Especially since we already had a heavily armored might using spear wielder in the party to begin with. Okay, well, how do you make this one different from that one to where they can still have their own thing, capital T thing? And still thrive together. Because you got them hops. You got the leap. You got the bound. And that was, that, that was really about it. Because it's an NPC and clearly you don't want them to ever outshine the player characters in a campaign setting. They need to be very laser focused in on singular concepts and tasks and mannerisms and things that you wouldn't want basically leeching into the spotlight of the people you're playing the game with because yeah it's it's fine for the guy running the game in this case me to have npcs around to join in on the fun that you're trying to create for everyone else around you there's there's nothing wrong with that what is wrong is when you're the guy behind the screen trying to run the game and also enjoy the game at the same time and creating something that completely drags the spotlight off of your characters. Right. Because you're writing this a little, I mean, well, you're, you're playing this a little bit for yourself, but mostly for the people who are playing in the game with you. It's collaborative storytelling. It's not a one man show. You don't ever want it to feel like a one man show because then the people who are playing with you aren't going to want to play with you. Because if you're laser focused as a game runner on making sure that everything makes it perfectly clear that you're the one running the show, that your NPCs are better than the PCs that are playing with you, you might as well be writing a book at that point. Yeah, so I guess one of the biggest pieces of advice that we can give when creating an NPC is a certain set of of rules, let's say. The world builder's rules for NPC construction. The NPCs should never outshine the PC, number one. Number two, they should be of some use to the party. They should be able to help in some way. And number three, their story should serve as story hooks for the players to be able to explore the world through this NPC companion that they have and their story. For example, with the spear, we were ready to just like, because basically the way the spear entered the party's lives is the same way he entered Josh's mind, which is just jump down in front of everybody, block anybody from moving forward and say, hi, I'm here. I'm joining you. Whether you like it or not. The spear of Irion has come to join you on your quest. 
Exactly. And obviously, the party, who are a pretty close-knit group at this point, are like, uh, some random dude that we don't know wants to join us. Who is awkward. Yeah, who's really awkward and... We know things about each other that we're not really comfortable sharing with strangers. Why should we just let this rando that we don't know whether or not we can trust them into our confidence? Well, there's a story hook here. Obviously, obviously, as we as players are like, oh my god, this guy is amazing. We have to find a way to get our characters to recruit him. Because we don't want to break character, right? We don't want to derail the story and make our characters act against their programming, so to speak. But we still want the cool guy. So, obviously, Josh, as a knowledgeable game master, knows this. So what does he do? He has the spear tell the story of how this swap happened. And say, listen, I've heard about you guys. I think if anyone can help me give Irion his life back, it's you guys. Will you help me? And boom, there's a story hook. Right, because they all want to know to fix things. That's... Part of part of being in an adventure crew that is largely good in in traditional alignment senses, um, they want to fix things that are going wrong in the world. And this obviously was something that went wrong. Yeah, and so there's the story hook for us to bring him on board and be like, okay, we'll help you. And also following rule number two, he helps the party because, again, going back to the open legend system... One of the things that I really like is it's not all about combat. It's about first and foremost telling a story and sometimes combat is involved in that. So what does the party do with the guy who can jump literal miles into the air and not get hurt? We use him as a scout. Hey, Spear, can you please jump up and tell us which way we need to go? Can you get our bearings for us? And off he goes. Which is a good non-combat way to use an NPC. He brings something distinct to the party. He has a story to tell, but it's not a story that outshines anyone else's. And yes, as a character, the spear is very bombastic. They're very boisterous. They're very loud. But it's because they don't really understand conventional social norms that might otherwise cause them to think, oh, maybe I shouldn't be speaking so loudly. Maybe they don't need to know every single detail of what's going on. You know, there, there was an exchange when the spear was first brought in that, you know, well, are you properly taking care of Irion's body? And the spear responds, yes. The spear provides the body with everything it needs, food, wine, women. Yes, because he heard from a straight male in a bar that one of the human body's needs is women. And of course, the spear doesn't know any different. The spear couldn't find any books on how to human. And so what do we do with that information? Well, first of all, the party, like obviously most people who are listening to that thinks that the spear was talking about sex. But the spear doesn't know what that is. He literally thinks that being in the same vague physical vicinity of a female presenting person is necessary for him to be alive. He's awkward. (laughs) But this makes for compelling storytelling. Because does the party correct him? Does the party actually realize, you know, that he doesn't know what he's saying and what he's implying? 
it gives opportunity for things to happen without drawing too much of the spotlight off of the party because then it becomes a matter of how does the party respond to something like this i think one of my favorite responses to the discussion of are you taking care of this living body that you're inhabiting is when they asked the party's necromancer to check if he was still alive and not just piloting a corpse so yeah obviously there's more to the spear but that's that's the essence in a nutshell that's that's where this character lives. That is their niche, is they are a companion of the party who very much enjoys being part of the party, who very much has a reason to want to be exploring and be part of the party, but doesn't necessarily have to be the party. Right, and can sit sort of on the sidelines, but still be a, an enriching part of the experience for both the players and the listeners um, for this setting. I, I have a question actually about uh, about a different character. Okay, shoot. I love as much as I love the Spear of Eron, We could go on and on and on and on and on. We only have so much time for this episode. So, another of the party's favorites is Remy, and of course, I know that he's one of one of your favorites as well, Josh. So, so of course, I picked this one on purpose. But I think we should we should introduce Remy before we before we have to wrap up. So. Remy was definitely one of the early NPCs that was planned for the game because when I decided that I wanted to run a campaign of this story instead of it just being a forum role play or, you know, a, a more personal chat message style of role play as I've done in the past, I made a series of assorted starter quests basically that were scattered around the different areas of Alterin and at each one in a more typical RPG fashion, there was a possibility there for an NPC. Some games give you a very limited number of player characters in, you know, the more traditional RPG sense. You know, your Final Fantasies will give you your fighter, your red mage, your white mage, your blue mage, your thief, your what have you. Uh, games such as the Suikoden franchise give you 103 different characters to recruit, which is a lot. Games like Chrono Cross and Chrono Trigger gave you characters that you could elect to not take with you permanently, characters that you could elect to have their story impacted by other characters you choose to take. In Chrono Cross particularly, it's literally impossible to get every character in one playthrough because picking certain characters shuts paths off for other certain characters. And I thought that was kind of an interesting mechanic to incorporate into a campaign setting to where here are these three hook quests that could be taken at pretty much any point in time early on in the campaign that could potentially result in three different NPCs. Now, in the case of this particular campaign, the party did manage to go through and actually collect all three of them, but that's not to say that another party running through the same scenario would have done the same things. And so... As we mentioned at the start of this episode, when we talked about Tarvin and the quest hook that he dropped with his shattered axe about the phantom in the woods that was plaguing his logging village, there was an NPC to be found there. And this is where Remy comes into play. Now, those who have listened to previous talks or listened to the original material, Remy is a golem. He's a construct, a magical robot. The party didn't know this at first. 
they met Remy in very dire straits out in the middle of the woods where not a whole lot of people are or should be considering its close proximity to a mountain full of xenophobic rock people. And what they encountered was a very large, very slow, very ineloquent something covered in pieces of hide and bark and various plant matter because it had been in that forest for a very, very, very long time to the point that it had actually become part of local legend. And so in creating this character, this was one of the few times where I wanted to really play with one of my favorite concepts. And that is what happens when you give a machine something in, not necessarily inanimate, but unliving, that spark of life. When you give it the ability to make decisions for itself, when you give it a sense of sapience, of sentience, of self, what happens to something that was built for a purpose when it can actually stop and think about that purpose? And in the case of this original quest that the party decided to embark on, they found out through Remy that what was going on in that area was a lot deeper and a lot darker than even the people who had lore and legend about it knew it was. This old war machine that had been living in the woods for hundreds of years that everyone was afraid of as some kind of horrible phantom was actually protecting them because there was something in the woods, something a lot older, something a lot less nice, that it did everything it could to deal with to keep the people of the village safe. But the only way it could really do that was by also being something kind of spooky. By literally scaring them out of the woods where their lives would have otherwise been in danger. Which is a nice strategy. Well, it was the only real strategy that it had to work off of because as the party came to find out, once they had connected a little with Remy and dealt with the actual problem, he was almost out of power. This old war machine that had been in those woods for so long acting on the last bits of its programming that it could remember, which was to protect the people of the continent because it had been built at a time when the continent was unified, had just about run itself out of steam. And there was a confrontation that could have quite literally ended in the loss of that NPC had the party chosen to go with the concept of stopping it from doing what it was doing and attempting to get a little juice back. Yeah, because... Here's the thing with Remy, we've talked about the Garricks in previous episodes, these war machines that people in the modern times, in the current era of Xanthuru, or at least on Alteran, blame for the destruction of those two nodes and the creation of Zan's Lament and the end of the Enlightenment era. He's one of those, but sapient. So the party is confronted with this choice of, here is this thing. That you have been taught your entire life its existence is wrong. It's now illegal thanks to several international treaties. And it's dangerous. And it's trying to power back up. What are you going to do? And in that case, Remy's story of him having survived, first of all, from that period up into the present and trying to wake himself back up, intersects with the party story of their adventures and the choices that they make in that moment change the outcomes of all of those stories. 
it affects their relationships with Remy, because eventually the party, spoiler, chooses to save him. It affects their relationships with Remy because he remembers who argued for him and against him. It affects the story because now he's there when he otherwise wouldn't have been. And now he's fully operational. Mostly. It affects how they operate from then on because now we have a party member whose existence is literally illegal. So how do we deal with times when we need to go into town? And it affects their relationships with each other because Remy isn't the only one who remembers who argued for shutting him down versus letting him live. And all of those story hooks and all of those developments come from the story that Josh initially gave Remy that the players then took and ran with. Yeah, because it could have gone other ways, but because of how the party decided to, uh, to embrace Remy, it created all of those story hooks. Now, they could have decided to just get rid of him or not power him back up or, you know, whatever. They could have just found a way to dispose of him, which would have been admittedly out of character for almost everyone uh, in the party. But... <laughs> No disassemble. <laughs> yeah. If they had if they had gone that route, it would be a different set of similar uh story hooks. Um, because they would all have that shared some of them may have that shared regret of not bringing him with them. Um, but some of them might be relieved that they don't have a terrible war machine that could kill them at any moment. Um in the party so it it creates similar but different different uh story hooks depending on what is chosen as far as as what the party decides to do yeah and now we have the additional story hooks of okay well now how do we handle taking remy into town because that's just going to be a thing for the entire rest of their travels they have to figure out what are we going to do with remy and they also have remy's story to tell and to explore. Yeah. It's uh, it's not over and done with. It could have been. And that still would have changed things. But that's that's where it makes me feel like I had created a good NPC. Because it participated in the story. It had its own story. But it didn't overwhelm or overshadow anything else that the players wanted to do. It linked up and it became that gear in the grand turning of everything. Yeah, and that is something that all of the party member NPCs that we've unlocked over the course of our of our season zero adventures have in common is that they never their stories never overwrite the story that the party wants to tell. They join the party and the agreement is basically we will help you with what you're doing. Can you please also help us with what we need at some point coexistence a lot of these party members have very long-term goals that aren't going to be solved immediately even if it did you know if the players decide to jump tracks and go focus solely on one person's story or another so we can have things where okay come with us and as we're doing this other stuff we will continue to use our resources and the information we get along the way to research your problem and work towards a solution. Your NPCs should always be willow to, willing to follow the player's lead unless there is a reason for them not to written into the story. And uh, that's actually a pretty decent place to uh, 
cut this one. And yeah, if you'd like to hear some of these strands of stories that have been woven into this grand tapestry on the loom so far, uh, feel free to check out the Minisode series that we will be releasing leading up to the season one of the Xanthrio campaign to uh, get everybody up to speed on what has been happening so far so that they can come in fresh, bright-eyed, and bushy-tailed and ready to experience this adventure's continuation with the rest of us. Yeah, because we don't really want you to have to listen to, what is it, almost 100-some-odd episodes of Season Zero content in order to be current with the story. So we are going to give you a nice little summary of things that have happened so far and all of the relevant story bits so you can jump right in on this crazy train with us when it gets going. Yeah, the uh, the, the Cliff Notes version, so to speak. Before we wrap things up completely, um, we do have a question from Melons Away, or Kyup, as his username currently is on the Discord. Looking for any tips on... How to build an NPC on the fly if you need one. So building an NPC on the fly can be difficult. It really comes down to knowing what you need them to exist for and not deviating too terribly far from that. In the case of like Tarvin, for instance, I knew I needed someone to drop this story hook so I made it someone personally involved in the story telling it. I knew how they came to being there to tell this story. I knew that they had something that gave weight, gravitas to his words in the, the, the prop, really, of the shattered axe that he was still carrying around. The guy didn't even really give himself time to throw out his trash. Something bad happened. He got the heck out. He was maybe not the best idea self-medicating to deal with the problem. Yeah, it really comes down to, like Josh said, knowing what you need, why does this person need to exist, and what do they need to accomplish by existing. That is one of my absolute favorite things that I've picked up from being on the Open Legend Discord from the man in charge, Great Mustache himself, is his question is always... When a player wants to do a certain thing, what do you want to accomplish by doing this? And the same thing goes when you're creating an NPC. What do you want this character to accomplish? Take that and apply a metric load of cause and effect and if-then statements, and you will have the immediate circumstances surrounding this character and hopefully some semblance of a personality to fill in most of the beginnings of a character and then from there if you need to fill in any gaps just throw in a couple little quirks yeah because what you want to avoid doing is invoking the sexy lamp trope and for those who aren't familiar uh the sexy lamp trope is uh, unfortunately generally attributed to female characters and it is the fact that if you replaced this character with a sexy lamp would it matter to the plot So when you're making an NPC on the fly, obviously they need to be there for a reason and you need to be aware of this, but you need to make sure, one, that they aren't just a cardboard cutout holding a sign that says plot line this way and an arrow, but you also don't want to sit there and stay up until six o'clock in the morning figuring out why this voice is bouncing around your head talking about itself in the third person. 
I also think that it really just comes from practicing. Being able to come up with characters really quickly, uh, especially if you're in the middle of a session and you need an NPC because you didn't have time to come up with one or or because your characters, your players are going into an area you didn't really populate yet. It really just takes a lot of practice to be able to go, okay, well, obviously this is a small town. It's going to need a tavern. So who is the person who is running the tavern and why are they running the tavern and and what are their circumstances? And also... Don't be afraid to pull from real-life experiences. If you need a bartender for your bar to be dropping quest lore for your players when you're making this NPC, maybe think about the guy who you generally see at your local convenience store or your usual barista at Starbucks. Borrow a few of their mannerisms. Maybe play off of their name a little. There's, there's no shame in drawing from your real-world experiences to flesh out your fantasy world. Especially because we write what we know. That's where we start. So... If you are just a little bit more observant the next time you go to the coffee shop or whatever, uh, then maybe you'll have a new NPC out of it. Yeah, or if you're finding yourself really challenged, maybe make a few quick character traits and number them. And when your party needs to encounter somebody, you roll a dice. And maybe when your party needs to encounter somebody, you roll a die, say a d20. It lands on a 17 This person's character trait is they are raising their three younger siblings by themselves. Cool. There's your person's story. Roll another die for their gender identity. Cool. Now they have pronouns. They have their story hook. They probably already have an occupation because the party is interacting with them. So you know whether they're a town patrol person, a tavern keeper, an innkeeper, whatever. There you go. The cultural heritage of the place where the party is will fill in a lot of how this person looks and acts. And from there, if you need to go deeper, you can later, but that'll give you enough to get by at first. Exactly. And also, don't be afraid to use resources at hand. A lot of officially published campaign settings will have things like example NPCs. Uh, example PCs for the character builder part of their campaign settings, things like that, where they give you the quick and dirty on people. Don't be afraid to use those either. Resources exist for a reason. As far as regular writing goes, I mean, obviously, writing a book doesn't have, you know, character compendiums in the back, things like that generally, that you can borrow from when writing your own stuff, because there's no hard and fast rules for writing a book. But generally, these tips will help build things on the fly for situations like this. And like Monica said, sometimes it's just about practice. I mean, heck, one of the things you could do is spend a little bit of time when you're not actively running a game or actively writing and just jot down some notes for some generic NPCs. Give them, you know, some character traits, but make it vague enough that you could drag and drop them in wherever you need them. And the next time you need an NPC for something, just look at your list. I'm one of those weirdos that finds Excel sheets really soothing. So uh, I actually have an Excel sheet that I have NPCs from from a book that I'm writing that I have in there. I have like what their name is, what their occupation is. I have where they come in in the story. And I also have kind of like what is their what is their goal in the story or like what are they trying to do whether it has any bearing on the plot itself or not um but like their their goals and ambitions um 
and it's helped me keep keep a lot of that straight. So I imagine it would be helpful for a campaign setting as well. I use Excel for everything, guys. And we love you for it. <laughs> you could say she's quite excellent at it. Ha. Ha. Well, I think that about wraps us up for this time. Indeed. And uh, yeah, so next time, next official episode, uh, we're going to be having a chat about some various little uh, bits and bobs. The, uh, the salad dressing, the crouton, so to speak. Uh, your, your, your side dishes, what have you, for your meal that is your, in this case, this campaign setting. Uh, talking about things like little cultural noms, little things like currency, uh, profanity, and how to use it in world. So you're not just saying F-bombs and S-bombs. And I'm so excited for this episode. <laughs> if you lovely listeners would like to contact us, you can do so by shooting us an email at worldbuilders at rhinobot.net or by tweeting us at Rhinobot Studios. We'll be glad to answer uh, your fan questions on air, but since we do record well in advance, please be advised it may take us several episodes to get to your question on the show. And we will see you very soon in our next episode. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This show is a member of the Rhinobot Studios family. For more information, including show listings, team member bios, social media links, and our community discord, please visit rhinobot.net.